Aloha, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the official Ronnie Landis podcast show. I'm your host, Ronnie Landis, and I'm also the founder of the Holistic Health Mastery Program, which is a holistic and integrative nutrition certification course. You can find more information on that at holistichealthmastery.com. And I would also like to let everyone know that we really appreciate it when people leave feedback messages on our iTunes subscription page. That really allows our ratings to raise and the show gets promoted to a wider audience of people out there. And I also get to look at that feedback that you guys leave and see what you think about the show. So I really encourage you guys to go to the iTunes website, leave a little note, maybe one or two sentences on how much you like the show or just your honest feedback and I really appreciate that. So today's episode is featuring Dr. Dan Engel, and what an incredible show we had today. This was just something that was a, it was a series of topics that I had wanted to go into for quite some time on the show, but it just never quite lined up with the right person, and then I finally brought on Dr. Dan Engel. And what an, a wealth of knowledge, insight, and real wisdom he is on the subjects of addictions, addictions of all kinds. We, we really dive in and really uh, dig out the nature of addictions and obsessive patterns, um, obsessive compulsive patterns, addictive behaviors. And then we dive full on into the subject of psychedelic plants, entheogens. And this, again, this is a subject that I have been wanting to get into for quite some time on the podcast. I have been a very avid researcher and participant in this field of nutritional study. Make no mistake, psychedelic plants are a form of nutrition or entheogenic nutrition as it were and it's a missing form of nutrition in our current civilized um, climate our social climate and it's something that's becoming much more popular it's becoming much more widely accessible and accepted by the community at large the scientific community especially has been doing tons of research and clinical trials and studies to really get the data on the potential benefits and therapeutic applications of entheogenic plants. Plants like ayahuasca, like psilocybin cubensis, um, even uh, cannabis and iboga and many others. Um, But the interview is just so rich with distinctions and so rich with um, not just research, but the way that Dr. Dan has organized the knowledge together and presented it in this conversation was unique. It was incredible. There's so much that we can talk about. I really want to open up the gateways and let you in full on And because it was such a rich topic and there was so much for us to dive into, I made this a special 90-minute 
interview. Normally we do 60 minute interviews, but this one was a 90 minute interview because there was just so much content to cover. And we also dive into really the principles of healing our trauma and exploring our demons, our shadows, and how these substances can help us fast track that psychological and spiritual uh, journey and also how to integrate the experience in a proper way that is effective and it's safe. And, you know, every little thing you want to know about this subject, we really dive into it head first. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Dan Engel. Enjoy. Dr. Dan Engel is a practicing psychiatrist, board certified in psychiatry and neurology. He graduated medical school at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio and and finished his residency in psychiatry at the University of Colorado Health Science Center. After residency, he completed a fellowship in child psychiatry at the Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland. His current practice combines functional medicine with integrative psychiatry to enhance the foundations of regenerative health and peak performance training. Before completing his medical degree, he was a collegiate soccer player for St. Andrews University in Austin. Welcome to the show, Dr. Engel. It's good to be on with you, Ronnie. Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, It's about time that we brought on this particular subject matter that is going to be a huge focus. It's not going to be the entire focus, but we'll see how it flows. And we'll jump into that uh, that specific little uh, nuance that, that I'm talking about that you're very well aware of and your work is very focused on in terms of uh, what we might call plant al- allies or... Um, even you know psychedelic plants, entheogens, that kind of thing. We'll totally get into that, and I'm excited to have you on because um, as far as I can tell, and just listening to your interviews and other people, mutual friends of ours in the field and colleagues, you're one of the leading researchers in that arena. And this is definitely something that I have been into as a nutrition specialist and just one of my fascinations over the years. But to have someone that actually specializes in it and has um, a, a background in psychiatry is really exciting for me, and I think it's going to be really enlightening for everyone listening. So basically where I would love to start with you is, could you just give us um, an introduction into the core principles of your work and also what sparked your interest in the field of integrative psychiatry? Well, let's. Uh, I'll take the second one first, and then move into the first one. Okay, great. Yeah, I um, and I've shared this story a couple of times before, um, but it's <laughs> it uh, it highlights uh, what happens when we just surrender to the path and see what shows up. So I went to college to play soccer. I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that, and uh, was suggested that I check out medicine. Um, and then for really for lack of better options <laughs> and uh, a preference to be a professional student versus mm. getting right into the job force after college, I elected to go into medicine. 
I uh, took some electives, enjoyed emergency medicine and surgery, and thought I was going to go down that route, and then broke my neck about two weeks before medical school started. And that was one of those aha moments, reflective moments, big um, change in trajectory. And after that, everything changed, um, became a bit more uh, appreciative of this uh, um, vulnerable life. Up to that point, had been really just burning the candle at both ends in peak performance um, sports and doing some not-so-healthy things to my body. Um, and after that, psychiatry was just the best fit. Um, and it was uh, an opportunity to get to know people at a deeper level because the way medicine was practiced then is essentially the way it's practiced now. Uh, it's an active process of slowing down when we're with our clients and it's not so different from how we live life. It's a fast paced environment. Uh, everybody's checking their watch and physicians are even more under the gun because standard of practice medicine and insurance reimbursement only give you so much time with each client. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're there till nine or 10 at night. And the average time any physician is with their clients is about 11 minutes. Wow. Can, yeah. you, can you just say that, that one more time? Yeah. Yeah. It, when, you, when you get that, you, you know, we de more, more deeply appreciate the state of affairs. The wow. average time any physician is with their clients is 11 minutes. Astounding. So when you, when you get that, it's, uh, it's no wonder that physicians aren't talking about the foundational protocols of exercise, diet, lifestyle factors, um, getting the, the reconfiguration of the relationship back towards education and more of a depth field practice. Um, traditionally, psychiatrists are the voice for the soul, and psyche means soul. But we as psychiatrists in the field have essentially followed suit with the other disciplines and really fallen into more of a prescription-based practice, a pharmaceutical-based practice. So the field of psychiatry is one in which we're seeing a lot of change, and the Renaissance is largely stimulated by frustration in the field. Mm. Clients are stuck on medicines that might work initially, but eventually have side effects and eventually stop working a large part of the time. Physicians themselves are frustrated because they are seeing clients on this treadmill, so to speak, if you're practicing in that kind of standard model. And um, everybody's desiring a change. And in the midst of that, we're seeing psychedelic medicines come to the forefront of research in psychiatry because they're really good at areas that psychiatry is really weak at, specifically chronic trauma, addiction, end-of-life transitions, um, treatment-resistant depression and anxiety, etc. So the demand is there, the research is there, and it's just a natural flow. So I got into psychiatry because I was desiring to drop into a deeper connection with my clients, and in the midst of being somewhat frustrated, particularly in the way we treat kids in child psychiatry with adult medications, mm. not knowing the full developmental ramifications, but also not having a whole lot of other options because 
we were only taught nutrition for like eight hours in four years of medical school. Mm-hmm. So we're not really taught the fundamentals. We're taught really well how to start medications, but not really well how to help people get off medications. And we're not, uh, we don't really understand the depth of um, the importance of uh, looking at genetic profiles and the whole field growing into nutrigenomic medicine and looking at the benefit of natural light therapy and getting kids and adults for that matter with their bare hands in the bare earth and getting reconnected to nature. So there's a lot that's growing and um, fortunately I had the opportunity to study with many professionals in other disciplines to widen my scope of practice that include naturopaths, chiropractors, Ayurvedic practitioners, Chinese medicine practitioners, because every field of medicine has its right place at the table. And when we know how to use each of them uh, synergistically, then we really start to create some powerful modalities as opposed to just seeing like one as the right answer, like allopathic medicine is the right answer. Well, allopathic medicine is really good on the battlefield and it's Mm. really good in the surgical room and in the emergency room, but that's not necessarily the way to intervene when you're looking at preventative medicine or you're looking to correct a chronic degenerative pattern. So there's there all, all the places for each of these disciplines has their um, right place around the whole table, and I think we're going to continue to see in our lifetimes the more advanced, sophisticated practices bringing the best of each of these fields into a more cohesive whole. Mm. <clears throat> Fantastic. Wonderfully put. And um, I really appreciate the the bandwidth in which you approach this whole subject from in terms of integrating the modalities. Um, it's very interesting, or I should say it's very easy um, I'm looking at myself and my own maturation as um, as a professional um, and even as a public speaker, and I've seen myself go through this little um, process of maturation where I kind of consider myself more or less a renegade nutritionist, um, and oftentimes that will psychologically put me in a place where I'm opposing an allopathic or a diagnostic-only focused system. Um, for for obvious reasons and and whatever else that might entail, um, because of all the damage that has been done. But at the same time, I really now as I grow into my profession, I see the need to present more of an integrative message um, because all things are valid depending on their application, right? Yeah, yeah, and then, and then we get to create a collaborative partnership with the other disciplines mm-hmm. versus a competitive one. Mm-hmm. And historically, that's the way it's been. And, you know, that's not just the case in medicine. That's the case in many aspects of our human, culture. Human affairs. <laughs> yeah, politics, the legal mm. system, not to mention the educational system, the environmental system. You know, and we're seeing that that hasn't really borne out and in, in, in no other capacity does nature uh, perpetuate life in competitive systems. That's right. Yes, there's the, the cheetah hunting down the antelope on the savanna, 
But that's still, in its own way, a collaborative system. Mm-hmm. The cheetah is only eating when it requires food, as opposed to just dominating the other animals because it gets off on it. <laughs> you know, no, only we do that. Only we choose to dominate one another and dominate other species and dominate the planet. That that is so wonderful. I was about to make just a quick little joke that I assume you're not a big proponent of the the long-held Charles Darwin survival of the fittest but as I was thinking that it was so interesting even studying that because Charles Darwin doesn't get any credit for the later stage of his life where he actually started to come to terms with the fact that it's actually based on adaptability so a species that can adapt to its changing circumstances will survive opposed to necessarily those that are stronger and can fight for survival. Totally. Mm. Yeah, and and that's and that highlights another really interesting part of the potential larger picture that in our lifetimes we might see bear out, which is crisis. We're getting to a stage. I just watched an awesome movie called Racing Extinction. That if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it because it's a really great, uh, fairly brass tacks and bare bones look at the state of affairs on the planet and the fact that we are not living in a sustainable model and if the thing if our relationship with the planet continues in its current state we're likely going to continue to see the threatened ecosystems um and the threatened resources become more of uh, a, a scarcity and how does that affect the way we live and the continued climate change and the domination of species and the extinction of species? So in the midst of us not living in a sustainable way, we might potentially have the opportunity to go through some significant crisis in our lifetimes. And I don't know that that's – I'm not a doom and gloom kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I'm actually an optimist, and I think it's a necessary part of it because – we typically, as a species, individually and collectively, don't typically make significant change until we're forced to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So I think the crises is just going to continue to potentially be an opportunity to live more within our means with more reverence and respect for our effect on the rest of the planet. And on and on one another and on on other cultures too. That is such a brilliant point. I, I I'm giggling because I just had this conversation um, two nights ago with a close friend and a uh, my my training partner, uh, workout training partner, and we were having this conversation about the fact that it seems human nature's um, default set point is to react when circumstances become unbearable then we will we are so pressured or we have so much pain that we are sick and tired of being sick and tired essentially and then we'll make change and he asked me he's like well is that necessary and I started laughing I'm like of course not of course it's not necessary but it's for some reason um 
we are, I don't know if we're just lulled into complacency, um, we're too comfortable, um, we don't have enough stress in our life, positive stress to keep us motivated and, and um, you know, passionate, um, I, you know, it's just, it's just an interesting point, and it's definitely going to, there's a few areas that I want to take with um, this conversation that that's going to become super relevant, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. that. But just any. But actually, on that note, um, I'd love to get your your elaboration on that because I think for a lot of people, that actually is a critical concept of this idea of: Am I going to act on life, or am I going to wait for life to act on me in order to make a positive change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have it built into our hardwire, we have an internal guidance system. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we just don't listen to it. Whether it's, you know, that internal guidance system that's saying maybe this career path isn't the best path or this relationship isn't the best one or me eating too much, too many donuts or drinking <laughs> too much beer or whatever it is. And I've certainly had that in, in the past for sure. There, there have definitely been times when I was way offline and like for example when I was in my intern year of residency it was a freaking hellacious year you're you you actually have just earned this MD degree yet you really don't know shit you get Mm. all of the worst jobs in the in the OR and in the ER you work in horrendous hours and on top of that um, there's the stress of not eating very well and not sleeping enough and so I was just a wreck, and I was drinking a lot of alcohol, and I was smoking a lot of pot. And in the midst of that, it's really hard to listen to that internal guidance system. We're not really taught that, and we're actually taught the opposite in our culture. We, we have our whole days, and it, it, this even starts when we're kids now. Kids have their whole days filled with schedules and things to do and assignments or classes or whatever it is, and we're just jockeying for position to find some means of value as some external success. Mm-hmm. I've got like, you know, a, a fat job and a fat paycheck and a, and a nice house or whatever, but are, are we living really uh, the, the calling of our deepest happiness? And you can make the argument that that we're not as a culture. The more we have, the less satisfied we are. And when you look at the whole field of positive psychology, it kind of shows that. That the more rat race mentality and the busier we are, the less time we have to cultivate deep interpersonal relationships and maintain those over time. There was just a great article. Actually, it was a TED Talk that uh, I just saw this morning shared um, from a friend of mine that a 75-year Harvard study, that's a long study, (laughs) right? 75-year Harvard study looked at something like 724 people, mostly men, college age at that time, and now like 64 of them are still alive and they're in their 90s. Wow. And they and they and yeah, they followed them seventy five years to see what are the factors that lead to health, longevity, vitality, etc. 
And the, the most consistent factor that stood out head and shoulders above the rest was not um, if you did a particular exercise routine, was not if you took a particular supplement, was not, not if you particularly did anything, right? And those are the most kind of popular blogs and posts and take this for 10 days and lose 20 pounds or take this and increase your lifespan by 10% or, you know, whatever it is. It's not a magic anything. It's deep, positive relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the <laughs> largest predictor of longevity, happiness, and fulfillment. And so if we're not – and that's just the basic thing, man, right? Just like, just like getting sunlight is and just like eating well is. These are just basic things, but the way we live takes us very much away from being in harmony with nature, with each other, and with ourselves. So at, at times, we're, we're not going to listen to that internal voice because we're just either too busy or we're stuck in survival mode or we just weren't taught to trust that until there's some kind of crisis. You know, I've heard it, one of my teachers said, you'll hear the whispers, and then you'll hear the shouts, and then you'll be put down, like, i.e., like, you'll get sick or something, and you'll be forced to listen, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there, there are knocks, and there are whispers, and there are talks, and then there are yells. I mean, it's like, we, we'll hear it, and then it that internal voice will just keep dialing up the volume loud enough until we're really forced to listen because I think there's a there's a deep um, desire that we have to connect with a, a, a more fulfilling inner truth versus just the rat race of doing it like everybody else is doing because we are one of the lemmings <laughs> you know mm-hmm. a- absolutely absolutely I really feel what you're you're honing in on is the crux of the matter for so many obsessive compulsive or addictive patterns we might we might um use as a colloquial term addictions um of one sort or another which this you bringing this up i want to i want to jump into this topic i had saved this for a little later but i think this is really the opportunity to to dial it in right now so I would love to discuss with you the nature of addictions and obsessive patterns. So, for example, I'm aware of different themes of addictive patterns, such as like intermittent addictions or gamification addictions, where essentially the outcome is based on a win-lose percentage of probability and is not 100% positive or negative opposed to like drinking alcohol or somebody snorting cocaine, which is basically a hundred percent detrimental. So like mm-hmm. I find I find that subject kind of interesting is that there's a different types of addictions or or addictive patterns that play out. Can we can we dive into that a little bit? Sure. Definitely. That's yeah. a rich conversation right there. Absolutely. Um so yeah, like maybe we can just go from there, from that, from that, um, <clears throat> that idea of you know what is the nature of addictive patterns that you've been able to observe and see with um, people that you've worked with 
There is a recent good book called Chasing the Scream by a guy named uh, Johan Hari. I think he's British. And he essentially wrote this treatise on the very fact that the war on drugs is crap. It hasn't worked. It's cost a lot of money. And it's put negative programming into an entire generation that is now needing to get reprogrammed and unwired. And the best way to do that is just to give people data. So when you look at the war on drugs, and let's just take that kind of facet of it. Um, and I, and we were, uh, I might be dating myself. I think I might be a little bit older, older than you, Ronnie. I'm 42. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. And so I was raised kind of smack dab in the middle of the war on drugs. And if you've ever seen those videos, this is your brain on drugs. And it's, you know, oh, got yeah. a little egg in the frying pan. And that's a <laughs> that's a pretty significant statement. And it sure was effective for me. Like, oh, shit, I don't want my brain to look like a fried egg. So <laughs> I <laughs> I was really judgmental against marijuana and any psychedelics and oh oh but but by the way alcohol's fine <laughs> so i was a binge drinker in um my early years because that was the that was the okay the sanctioned realm of mm-hmm. rebellious exploration right so it's in our nature as adolescents to be rebellious if we don't rebel as adolescents, we'll rebel as adults. And usually the ramifications are a little harder. So midlife crises or whatever it might be, whatever flavor it looks like. And it's a healthy thing because we're, we're trying to find our voice. We're finding those people around us that have like-minded, like-spirited values. And at that time... Alcohol was kind of the big thing, you know, alcohol and cigarettes. Uh, I was a competitive athlete uh, and didn't smoke just because every time I smoked, I felt like crap and I couldn't breathe very well. So that didn't go along very well with being um, athletically driven, but alcohol was fine. So, right, let's do that. And whatever it is, whatever the shtick is, there's a judgment that gets impregnated in a particular way because of somebody's outside agenda. And there's another great movie called, um, I'm just going to start plugging you with movies, um, Neurons to Nirvana. Oh, yeah, I love that. I've seen that four times, right? I think. Great, great uh-huh. flick about the, 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 the cultural and historical ramifications about what put psychedelics into Schedule 1. Mm-hmm. So there was an agenda. And it threatened the establishment. And it was, you know, all of these drugs, so to speak, were deemed dangerous. And interestingly enough, marijuana was put in Schedule 1 while the Department of Human Services has a medical patent for marijuana as a neuroprotectant and an antioxidant. So you have one form of we have one arm of the government saying it's schedule one, which means it's highly addictive and no known medical benefit, while you have another arm of the government having a medical 
patent on it, right? So there's this hypocrisy, and that's when we get into the um, desire that I have and a lot of my colleagues who are researchers in this field desire to have, which is a transparent, open-ended discussion. Like, let's, let's figure out what everybody's agenda is and mm. put those aside. We have to be able to figure out what everybody's agenda is so that we can come to equal languaging. Otherwise, everybody's agenda starts to interpret the data to, to fit whatever their agenda is. So if we can put those aside and just look at the data, then we can have a pretty meaningful conversation. And it gets really juicy. And when you look at the data, the war on drugs does not help. It's not effective. One great example is Portugal, when they legalized all drugs and all psychedelics. Everything. Heroin, cocaine, to ayahuasca and ibogaine. They legalized everything about 15 years ago when they realized that 1% of their population, 1% of their entire population was addicted to heroin, which is a pretty sizable number. That would be like three plus million people addicted to heroin in the States. And um, mm. thankfully, our numbers aren't that high. But more and more people are getting addicted to heroin because prescription opiates are so expensive. You have people getting stuck on prescription pain meds because of physical and emotional trauma, and it's like one-tenth of the cost to be using heroin instead of opiates. So there's a whole reason that that shift has been happening. We'll get into that later, but let's come back to, okay, so the war on drugs, they recognized that it wasn't working, they legalized everything, and drug use went down. Yes. And and um, the the lethality of those who were continuing to use also went down because they put money into social infrastructure and education and safe use practices. And they started to normalize the fact that people have trauma and they're finding they're just trying to find a way to treat trauma. Gabor Mate is a really well-known researcher and addictionologist in Canada. And he's written a book called uh, the Chasing the Hungry Ghost, I think it is, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating guy. And I agree with a large part of what he says, which is most addiction is related to trauma. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I also think that from Johan Hari's perspective, when you, when you read Chasing the Scream and you look at um, some of the research that shows, yes, rats in isolation with cocaine water will use to the point of dying. They'll use to the exclusion of food and water, and they just keep hitting that cocaine tablet until they die. Until you put them with a lot of their rat friends. And then they're, having, they're, they're doing rat circus and having rat sex, and they're just having, like, rat fun. And at that point, you don't have lethal users. Your the use rate drops to less than twenty five percent of what the rats in isolation are using, and you don't have any lethality. So that shows that one, there's still going to be portions of the population that experiment, and there's those people in our you know human experiment that will look to variety of modalities to see what they're made of. 
whether that's you know going on the mountain in a vision quest or it's traveling the world or it's using psychedelics or a whole host of other ways that people explore their own consciousness you're gonna have some people that do that and when you have people connected to one another drug use just doesn't seem as relevant it might be fun to explore but it's much more fun to hang out with your friends than to just get completely obliterated in your psyche and like be cashed out on the couch while everybody else is having fun right so I think there's a combination of both a connection and so come back to the Harvard research like the people that live the longest and the happiest are those that have meaningful relationships and there's a lot of trauma in the world for a variety of reasons whether it's like man-made trauma like through war and just putting people in horrendous situations like our troops going abroad or the genocides in different parts of the country I mean in, in the world well you could say the country too I mean just look at Fox News um, and you have this this for lack of a better kind of immediate numbing effect you have people exploring ways to lessen that trauma and that mental, emotional, and physical pain. So in the midst of no other options, people will turn to something that works. And drugs work. They, they for a short term, they turn off that deep level of suffering. And then over time, the system gets addicted. And particularly to something like opiates, those addictions can be really hard to shake. So from my perspective, it's both a lack of meaningful connection to others and the ongoing desire to try and find a way to help our suffering not be as um, significant or not be so severe. When we get into the conversation about putting everything on the table and find ways that help the psyche heal from those addictive patterns and psychedelic medicine is one way to do that there are a lot of other ways to do that too and we build in more of a community-based educational model that normalizes some of these experiences validates the challenge and helps people build community towards moving forward and not feel so victimized then we start to see pretty meaningful resolution it's so interesting and so spot on based on my experience, this theme about the quality of our life, the quality of our health is based on the quality of our relationships and the communities that we interact with and hopefully contribute to and are being contributed from. And um, there is such a disconnection of that component, I find. And I, I know from my experience of doing ayahuasca, of doing psilocybin cubensis mushrooms, um, uh, and different, uh, even iboga, and different, different, um, you know, medicine plants that I've, that I've experienced, the same theme tends to come up for me when I'm really deep in the trenches of my own psychological exploration. It always comes up to relationships, it comes back to something that I may have did that hurt somebody's feelings, that was out of integrity, that was 
um, giving somebody a cold shoulder, or someone very close to me, like a, um, a partner or an ex or something like that, or, or the way that my relationship with my mother, um, things of that nature. Those are the most prevalent themes that actually have come up for me, and I've done a lot of these things at this point. Um, which So I, I just find that really fascinating and really, really um, spot on is that if we focus more on our humanity and being in integrity with our relationships, the other pillars of our life tend to kind of like uh, uh, integrate back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's a safe place to start. <laughs> mm. get, into, get into harmony with all your relationships. That's a great place to start. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too because like you could really – you know, I'm sure you've been exposed to this. I know that you spent time um, at the Tree of Life, Dr. Gabriel Cousins' um, uh, clinic in Patagonia, Arizona, and you're very well, you know, um, involved in the quote-unquote like raw vegan movement and community. And I've noticed um, that certain patterns can arise in people that have an imbalance in their focus where if you focus only on the diet or the lifestyle, so to speak, um, and you exclude out the harmony of your relationships, you can develop like orthorexic characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's a challenging road at times to make such a, a big leap. For many people, it's not it's not a huge leap. But to go raw vegan for a lot of people is a big leap. Mm-hmm. What I found when I did that is that I eventually ended up excluding a lot of my really important relationships. Mm-hmm. For example, the relationship I had with my dad. Wow. And it um, a lot of the things that we had bonded over were things that you just kind of did when you grew up in South Texas. Watch football. <laughs> hunt, Mm -hmm. drink beer, uh, you know, there's a particular mindset around that. And I, it was, it was exactly what needed to happen for me to get more clear about what my truth is and what's important to me. But in the midst of doing that, there was a a large gap that ended up uh, being created between he and I, because we didn't really have much of anything to relate to. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm in I'm in the midst of so many things that I'm feeling really passionate about that he can't relate to, and I'm judging him for all of his meat eating, football watching, <laughs> beer afternoons, which is not helpful because I was judging his lifestyle as being quote unquote wrong, mm. and judgment is just going to continue to separate people, and it separated he and I, and it was. When I was down in living in the jungle, maybe kind of halfway through my time there, um, I had a, a massive, really powerful and beautiful healing with him on my side. He wasn't there. It was just what happened for me in ceremony. And um, I had there were a couple things that happened. I had a healing of an early trauma that was... Um, really just related to my confusion as a real little kid about my parents going through a divorce and feeling 
separated, rejected, isolated, abandoned. I mean, it's just the, kind of the natural thing a kid at that age would go through. But it was so early that I didn't really remember it. And so some of what the psychedelic medicines do is that they help us retrieve pre-verbal memory. And if it's true what the developmental psychologists say, that 85% or so of our personality is set by the time we're five years old, mm. then you've got the majority of what makes us who we are for life until we start to really do our personal development work happen before our brains have even matured enough to connect the language centers to the memory centers. So that's why most people don't have great recall prior to like five years old. And yet, the majority of what makes us who we are happened before we're five years old. That's why it's really challenging in kind of straightforward traditional psychotherapy to get to the heart of the matter because just talking it out is not necessarily going to get to the nitty-gritty. Mm -hmm. And what the psychedelic medicines can do, and oftentimes for people what happens, is that there's a re-experiencing of that early trauma and an ability to witness it, get in touch with it, see it from a different perspective, have a corrective experience, heal it, integrate it, become more whole through it and with it as opposed to trying to overcome it, reject it, deny it, or maybe not even know that it's there. And so we come out of it the other side more whole and therefore more able to be connected to those that are closest to us. So I had this incredible healing that happened related to my dad. And without even talking to him about it, the next time I saw it, I could tell he was different on his side as well as me being different on my side. And there was this great kind of reconnection. And over time, I've included cooked food back into my diet. And I do eat meat from time to time. And occasionally I'll have alcohol. I don't, I don't really judge it as right or wrong. It just doesn't work for me. And so I'm just in general, I'm, I'm much less judgmental. I still have judgments. We all do. Mm -hmm. I'm still, still growing. We all are. And I recognize that it feels so much better to have less judgment, um, try and see people, including myself, in our best light, continue to expect that we're developing along the path of becoming our best self. And... Um, also try and do the good work in the world that fosters harmony and collaboration and joy and connection in the midst of living these lives that, that's so focused on success and busyness. It's a, it, it's a challenge, but uh, I, think, I think it's one we're ripe and ready for. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experience in that in, in – it, it, it's, I, I remember my friend Steve Adler, um, he has a great quote. He, he is, he's the founder of the company Sacred Chocolate, and he's just this really incredible Willy Wonka embodied human being, and uh, 
he has this really great quote that comes out of his own self-created religion, which is the basically the religion of the Sacred Heart. It's basically centered in love. And he has this quote, um, oh, what is it? The only sin a child of God is capable of making is judgment. That's his, that's his interpretation of the whole thing. And I just find that such an interesting thing. I keep coming back to that personally is judgment, judgment. Like if I have a, a bias or an overt judgment about something, it's going, to, it's going to influence the way that I'm perceiving something. It's going to be subjective instead of objective, like what you mentioned previously about just looking at the data. What does the data actually show us away from our perceptual filters? Um, the way we want to see it opposed to the way that it actually is. And I think this might be relevant too, is that I, I tend to believe that states of anxiety and frustration um, tend, to, tend to manifest more overtly when our current circumstances are other than the way that we picture the way that our circumstances need to be. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, that's one of the definitions of suffering from the Buddhist perspective is wanting things to be different than the way they really are. Right, right, right. <laughs> that can be super frustrating. <laughs> yes. Okay, so this is a fantastic segue into um, the, the continuity of this, this particular part of the conversation um, discussing entheogens. By the way, for all the listeners, I want to distinct a very or point out a very important distinction here, um, and maybe this will lead us into some some interesting territory. When I think of the word entheogen, I think of its translation, which is to generate the divine from within, or the word psychedelic, which is basically mind manifest. And there is such an interesting cultural connotation associated with these substances and this is the point I just want to drive out there for the for people listening is that oftentimes we will we will hear the term hallucinogen and I kind of resent that term because it's not really accurate and it brings up a certain connotation that oh you're going to take a substance and it's going to cause you to hallucinate essentially it's a mirage it's a figment of your imagination. So have an experience, but don't worry or don't take it too seriously because that didn't really happen, right? Um, I feel like that's a cultural like interpretation that leads people to get a really um, oftentimes negative or perverted, um, uh, in, yeah, I'll just say interpretation of what these substances are and what they can be. Um, so I really prefer the word entheogen for that, that translation for that. I feel like it's more accurate based on the experience that I've had. And I know that what you're sharing, um, is essentially the, you know, the, the, the root of the fruit. Um, so I just want I just, <laughs> anyways, I just wanted to put mm -hmm. that out there as just a disclaimer for, because a lot of people listening to this may have never had an experience with these things, and they may be really interested in it, but they also might have some of these cultural consensuses on the back end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good distinction, uh, particularly because a lot of people do have biases and judgments 
And um, again, I come back to the data. Right. When you put people in an experience, so this is a, for, for example, you mentioned psilocybin earlier. And so there was this landmark Johns Hopkins study in 2004 mm-hmm. that put people into an experience controlled. You know, some people didn't, some people did. It's difficult to have double-blind placebo-controlled trials because you know <laughs> if you took psilocybin or not versus like taking a placebo pill. There's a very different effect. You know? <laughs> and so the researchers know if you did. So, but it's, so there are some creative ways to structure the research. And so what did the data show? It showed that 94% of people, that's a big number, 94% of people that had never taken psychedelics before but had some degree of personal development work, i.e. meditation, etc., went through a psilocybin experience and 94 of those, 94% of those people said that it was in the top five spiritual experiences they had ever had. Mm-hmm. And at 14 months out, which is as long as the study went, there was no side effects and they still said that it was in the top spiritual experiences that they had ever had. So, again, when you just come back to the data, so you take a look at the potential for these medicines to be expansive to one's consciousness, to be able to look at the world in a different way, to be able to see themselves in a different way, to see themselves as it relates to the world or their communities or their families, i.e. the relationships in a different way. That's really impactful. That's mm. superbly meaningful. That's why psilocybin is going into phase three trials right now, which is the last stage before it's available to be prescription ready. Mm. MDMA is also going into phase three trials, largely because of its efficacy in treating chronic severe PTSD. Mm-hmm. So it may be that these medicines do instill an altered state of consciousness, and through that, there might be some kind of visionary experience. And so coming back to your point about hallucinogens or hallucinations, yeah, they can bring forth something that wouldn't have been there otherwise, and that's why another great mm, characteristic of these is catalysts. These medicines are catalysts and they Mm. catalyze consciousness. And the definition of a catalyst is something that stimulates a reaction that would otherwise have not occurred or would have taken a long time to occur on its own. Mm-hmm. So they're catalyzing something to happen. They're catalyzing expanded sense of knowing from a term um, William James wrote a landmark book way in the early to mid-1900s called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And it was kind of one of these seminal books in the field of psychology. And the the mystical experience that he talks about is very much like the psychedelic experience. There's a sense of a truer depth of knowing. 
and um, the description of that is the noetic experience or the it, noetic is also similar to psychedelic and they both mean coming from the mind and with that noetic experience there's also a deeper experience of one's personal truth that hadn't been clarified to that extent before and there's a sense of being contacted to, with the sacred or the profane or the the um, depth of um, reverence to one's life and to one's surroundings and when we go through these, we can't help but be changed, particularly if we haven't had that kind of experience before. Like Mother Teresa had an early experience with God. Mm -hmm. And in her autobiography that was later released, as I understand it, um, she that early experience when she was in her mid to late teens was what turned her on to being um, in service to God throughout her whole life. And she didn't have a similar experience for the rest of her life. It was that one experience early on that kind of stimulated this massive, you know, seminal archetype of service in the world as like the, the great mother from the, the Catholic tradition. And so there can be this massive watershed in personal development that happens through through just one psychedelic experience, and many of the the like the older traditional ayahuasqueros and ayahuasqueras, they don't recommend somebody coming through ayahuasca ceremonies again and again and again. From one particular perspective, they they make um, the reference to ayahuasca being like a corkscrew. And it pops open your cosmic egg mm -hmm. like a wine bottle. And once it's open, you shouldn't need to come back. From a particular perspective, I understand that. Although from the Western perspective, we get stuck in these repetitive patterns just because of the way our culture is and, and the ease for which it is to follow back and fall back into old patterns. And all, that's on one hand. And on the other hand, I don't think people do that... Uh, necessary integration work to really maximize the potential benefit from any one ceremony. And that's a whole other discussion around integration. Mm. So again, when we come back into that discussion around the psychedelic experience, yes, there can be what I think is um, well described as a visionary experience versus a hallucinatory experience. And oftentimes the distinction between those two is that people go through a psychedelic experience and they have some kind of corrective experience related to trauma or a vision that gives them more of an uh, inclination of how to move well in their life or what to change. Oftentimes people that go through a visionary experience, it will be something that was unexpected. Like, oh, wow, that thing came up. That's strange. And I would have never anticipated that. I would have never scripted that. I would have never dreamed that up. So it, there's a sense that it kind of came from something, some knowing greater than our own conscious mind versus a hallucination is oftentimes generated from the conscious mind. And mm -hmm. it's related to somebody 
for whatever reason, and we could get into the whole field of schizophrenia and psychosis as it relates to hallucinatory experiences, but suffice it to say, most of the time, those experiences are generated from something that's ego-driven, <laughs> that's, that's from a part of their mind that has kind of just taken fear or judgment or deep criticism or deep trauma and mm -hmm. kind of rolled with it and it's exploded and and it's no longer able to be easily controlled and it's also another reason <laughs> why people with schizophrenia or a history of psychosis are not good candidates for psychedelic medicine right because they're they're already feeling so much that's hard for them to control within their mind and and putting them through a psychedelic experience is like throwing gasoline on a fire okay this is a really interesting uh idea right here what comes up for me very quickly is um as a strategist as a health and nutrition strategist i am strategically putting pieces of the puzzle together for people um i think of like calcium dissolvers for calcification conditions or estrogen dissolvers for um, hormonal um, issues and that kind of thing. But when I do those things, I also have to piece together certain other elements of chelation, extraction, um, to, to accommodate the, the, the catalyst or to accommodate the dissolving of a certain toxic substance or a biofilm, for example. Um, so what I'm getting at is I'm getting a sense of um, these tools, these medicines or plant allies act as ego dissolvers, but it's not always as simple as just saying, okay, we're going to have you take this and then it's going to quote unquote dissolve away your trauma or your, your, your uh, issue. There's other pieces of the puzzle that have to be integrated into that mosaic in order for someone to have a safe and successful, um, uh, I guess, healing? Mm-hmm. Does that, that, that make sense? Totally. Okay. Yeah, and it's challenging for a lot of people to go through this kind of work because it brings up the shadow. Yes. And you don't get to choose how the shadow gets to come online, right? Because that would be us trying to still control it. Yeah. And that's what got us in trouble in the first place. And like Einstein said, no problem has ever been solved using the same consciousness or mindset that created it. Man. We have to have a different view. And this is where it, it becomes even more important to be um, mindful in how we use these medicines and any medicine. Every medicine, including medications, has their sweet spot and their target range. If you don't take enough, there's no effect. If you take too much, it becomes poison. Mm -hmm. LSD is the same. LSD, ayahuasca have never killed anybody on their own. No documented deaths solely from either of those. People have had complications taking ayahuasca with other things, including medications, which mm -hmm. is not a great idea. And have had negative outcomes because they didn't disclose they had a history of psychosis or whoever was giving them the medicine didn't ask them. 
which is in another whole discussion around the importance of having safe practices and working with people that are in integrity and skillful. And, and LSD has never killed anybody. The only time it's ever been associated with a death is when they tried to find a lethal dose and, they, and the researchers flooded this poor elephant with a truckload of LSD and it died. But what ended up being found out later is that it died from complications of the barbiturates or the sedatives that were used, not from the LSD itself. Wow. That being said, they can cause extraordinarily harmful effects if not done well when used too much or in, in the wrong setting. Are, are, I've seen, are, are these specifically psychological effects? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's. I don't know of a significant physiologic or body negative effect from using too much of either of those. Um, Ibogaine can certainly cause heart issues, which can lead and has led to death when people weren't monitored close enough. But for, for those two particularly, the the biggest psychological ramifications are, um, or the biggest ramifications are psychological, and more so with LSD than with ayahuasca because the natural medicines in my experience have built-in safeguards like they they come from nature you take too much aya you're gonna puke it up mm-hmm. same with same with psilocybin same with peyote same with any of them except i iboga like i mentioned um but when you use lsd because it's synthetic it can push you through the glass ceiling to a place that can be extraordinarily psychologically damaging. I have seen that happen. And, and I'm not talking with like, you know, a one or two hit dose or like a hundred microgram dose. I'm talking about like a 10 hit dose that some people do. Um, I personally did that because I was curious. <laughs> and as, as is often the case, when we become curious and we're doing this research, we can't help but put ourselves into the laboratory. And so if I'm going to be working with people who have themselves been kind of shattered going through these pretty mind-altering experiences, for me, in order to really know how to help somebody come back, I have to be in that in that position myself. Otherwise, I'm just guessing. <clears throat> yeah. So there are times to lay off the gas pedal and be a bit more <laughs> mindful in how we proceed. Mm-hmm. It appears to me, based on um, you know herbology and studying studying um, phyto phytochemistry, plant based chemistry, um, that alkaloids like the alkaloids that are present in these plants and others, like wild foods, wild plants, and specific herbs, they have certain functions as that can serve as either a poison or a panacea. And really, what dictates that is the dosage. Um, and like you said that, you know, for example, ayahuasca, if you take too much of it um, for your own constitution or your circumstance, your situation, um, you'll just throw it up. You'll purge it, right? So, that, so I think that's a fascinating idea that built within the fabric of these, uh, these plant allies, as I like to call them, there is actually, um, what was the term you used? There's a... There's a, a you got built-in safety mechanism, yeah, safeguard. Yeah, like an ejection mechanism if you push the throttle too far. But yeah. when we synthesize and pharma- pharmaceuticalize 
plants um, or their active constituents, their active alkaloids, and remove that of their accompanying um, chemistry. You know, in herbal terms, basically what they say is you get the you get the uh, you get the chemical, but you lose that plant's wisdom. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's pretty accurate in many contexts in the way we use medications uh, in the West. And again, it's not to say that medications are bad. It's just to recognize that that nature made nature's got a pretty awesome design. And oftentimes we don't fully understand what are all of the role of the, cons- the, the variety of constituents in a particular herbal medicine. And yet it's, it's easier to synthesize the primary component and utilize that as the only efficacious treatment because it's got a known purity, a known um, potency. You can dose it. You kind of, you know what you get. Um, that's one of the challenges of ayahuasca research in some capacities because um, it can be a wide mixture of a variety of different things. But usually when we're studying Aya, we're trying to be as clean as possible. We use just the two plants um, at a relatively consistent level of purity and potency and then be able to see what the the long-term ramifications are and the benefits. One reason that Ibogaine is kind of effective versus Iboga in the realms of research protocols is because Ibogaine is the primary constituent in Iboga. And so we, again, we have a known purity and a known potency, and therefore we can outline the research parameters in, in a way that is most consistent with the Western research model and um, with something like Ibogaine because it does require some safety monitoring. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think it's challenging when we try and put too much of such a wide scope of benefit into a relatively narrow but more um, appreciated and, and historical use of pharmacological research, double-blind placebo-controlled trials, etc. Um, so the, the field is evolving and we're finding more and more um, creative ways to do that to set up really good and sophisticated research parameters so that we know exactly what, uh, as best of our ability, know exactly what the, the effects are, what the long-term ramifications are, and um, who is a good candidate, when is that person a good candidate, who's not a good candidate. And from the research that, that has been done so far, the psychedelics are pretty freaking amazing in when used well in their ability to heal things that we've been really challenged as a field of psychiatry to heal, which is things like chronic trauma, chronic PTSD, um, chronic addiction, end of life transitions, those things that I mentioned earlier. And that's one, you know, part of what was highlighted in Neurons to Nirvana. And I think they did a pretty good job in showing the different ways that the research is good. I think we're just going to continue to see it. Um, and hopefully 
be able to have a, a larger, more broad-based discussion uh, to be able to help end or at least significantly curb people's suffering. There's a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of treatment modalities and options that um, are present but not so available just because of the legal framework. And yet you've got a lot of people in the midst of experiencing these medicines in underground arenas, just like the war on drugs did not curb drug use. Something like more than half of all people in uh, federal prison are in for some kind of relatively minor, nonviolent drug offense. Mm -hmm. Right? So we've got just this massive campaign that's not doing anything to curb drug use. So why not let's have a really sophisticated discussion about the potential benefits of the psychedelic and antiogens to be beneficial. And oh, by the way, maybe those things will help actually curb addictions and help people resolve the trauma and the disconnection that's driving it in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm wanting to get your take on what would be some potential entry points into psychedelic plant uh, medicine experiences for some people and maybe some specific on certain plants in this regard. I'm, I'm very aware of the concept of a dieta and certain traditional preparations involved into going into a medicine ceremony, but I definitely feel that each one is going to be unique to the to the substance or the ceremony. So let's let's touch on that. What are some some entry points that people can um, explore? Well, first and foremost, I think it's super important to go with somebody or experience these medicines with somebody who's skillful and high in integrity. They know what they're doing. They've done it before, hopefully for 10 or more years and not just 10 or more weeks. Because you do. You have people coming back from the... <laughs> it's crazy. You've got people coming back from the jungle saying, oh yeah, I drank with a shaman. Now I'm a shaman. Jeez. And I'm pouring people medicine. It's just asinine. And so that's even more reason to have some kind of discussion around safe practices and guidelines for effective care. Um, so that's even more important in my mind than the legality is knowing that somebody's skillful and integrous because if somebody has skill and integrity that the chances are extraordinarily high for having a, a positive effect a positive experience that being said many of these medicines are schedule one and not legal for general use in the states you can find ayahuasca legally in the States if you go through the Santa Dime Church or the Universidad de Vegetal, which are two Brazilian-oriented or historically um, oriented uh, religious settings. The Dime Church is kind of like going to Catholic Mass and instead of taking a wafer, you drink ayahuasca. So it's very different. It's daytime. They separate the men and women into pews. You're reading hymnals. I mean, it's kind of like, it's pretty interesting in the way they've, they've done it. I've, I haven't done a dime service by, myself, by the way. 
Um, but that is one legal framework. Another is just something that just recently opened up, and I hope these guys aren't going to mind that I mention it, um, is what, and well, they shouldn't mind because they're on the web now, um, being described as the first uh, essentially non-denomination ayahuasca center in the United States. Mm. And uh, they're up in Washington. And um, I, I... Right now, I'm forgetting the name, but if you, I think if you did a search for legal ayahuasca center, Washington State, you'd probably find them. They just started a couple of months ago, and I'm interested to see um, how they go with it, because my understanding is that they have set up their own church. It's a new church, and they're essentially now going for religious protection, but it's not associated with either the daime or the, the UDV. They're kind of doing their own thing. So that's one way you can. There are a lot of people experiencing ayahuasca in the States underground. And there are a lot of people doing a lot of things in the States underground, <laughs> even though it's illegal. Right? Mm-hmm. So you also have peyotes legal through um, the Native American church. That's located um, in southeastern Arizona. Actually, a friend of mine, his parents started the Native American church in the 70s. And that started the legal precedent to use psychedelics for religious purposes. And they've taken it to court. It's been held up several times. Um, let's see. I um, Psilocybin and MDMA are going into phase three trials. Those can be found in the States, but technically, legally, only as a part of a um, study uh, compendium. Um, same thing with LSD and DMT. Those are being studied, but not currently legal for widespread recreational use. And again, I'm not, I'm not recommending people just go out and use these medicines on their own without doing some kind of preparation work, having some kind of skilled facilitation and doing some serious integration work. That's the biggest gap right now is the lack of integration. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how effective these medicines are if you just have a safe environment. When you have skillful facilitation, it becomes freaking magic. But if you just have a neutral environment and the medicines do their work, they're freaking amazing. The challenge is, is a lot of people aren't or, or don't even know the importance of doing the integration work. It's, um, it's, uh, it's like... You know, Morpheus told Neo, hey, dude, you pop the red pill, you don't go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yes. when all of that shadow material comes out and that person wasn't ready for it, then it can be really overwhelming and really scary and and really challenging to now kind of go back into life, so to speak, because things are different. So those are kind of that's just the broad discussion on the U.S. front. Um, I'm affiliated with an Ibogaine center in Mexico called Crossroads, and that's where we work primarily with folks going through addiction, but we also run psycho-spiritual programs too that have been extraordinarily amazing for a lot of people through a wide demographic, some people very successful and looking to take their personal development to the next level, and some people fairly new in the game and having massive experience. Um, Peru is 
where I have spent the most time with ayahuasca. Like I said before, I, I lived there for about a year to study with the medicines. I know the centers down there a lot better than the centers uh, elsewhere. And so I typically either facilitate workshops down there. Um, for example, there's one coming up uh, in April. We're taking a group down to Peru. And that's where the medicines come from. Both San Pedro or Wachuma, uh, which is a cactus, different medicine than ayahuasca. San Pedro is, is the cactus, comes from the mountains. Ayahuasca comes from the Amazon River Basin um, between Brazil and Peru into uh, Colombia and Ecuador. Um, so there are a variety of ways and opportunities worldwide. And it's interesting that, um, let's take Ibogaine. Ibogaine, the U.S. is only one of five countries where Ibogaine is illegal. Mm -hmm. And it's the most effective treatment for addiction on the planet, period. And these addictions being a very Western, culturally driven addictions. Yeah, Ibogaine particularly is good for heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. Because of the way it works on the mu and the kappa opioid receptors. So it, has, it seems to have some kind of ability to just scrub those receptors completely clean. So mm. that there's little to no withdrawal symptoms going in or cravings coming out. So those withdrawal symptoms, are those... Um derived a lot because there's residue around the receptor sites? They have uh, an affinity for those receptor sites. So while, that med while the drug, heroin or prescription opiates, are being cleared from the system, there's a buffering mechanism intact so that the cravings are either non-existent or fairly minimal. About 10 to 20% of people have some degree of craving mm -hmm. um, and even if that's in place, it's still significantly less than it would have been otherwise. I see. And so, and, and just to kind of follow up on that too, Ibogaine, even though it's it's really good for heroin and opiates, it's also good for cocaine and methamphetamine and smoking and sugar. Mm -hmm. It's with a lot of clients go through that process. And I'm not trying to sell Ibogaine. I'm just giving people like the, the kind of the compendium of its potential benefit. Uh, and psilocybin is amazing for addiction, too. LSD is amazing for addiction, too. Bill Wilson, the guy who developed Alcoholic Anonymous, he had part of his sobriety happen through an LSD trip <laughs> back in the 50s. And psilocybin has just now been shown to be 80% effective for smoking. Right? That's a super small study, and it's going to get replicated. But six months out, 80% of people were completely off cigarettes, which is like three times better than the standard care. But again, that's in the setting of supported therapy. That's with three sessions. One was a test dose and then two active um, experiences with psilocybin spaced at like three weeks and then at eight, eight weeks. And it was in the context of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. So you had people going through a process with somebody who's really skillful, highly integrous, walking them through, someone who knew how to, to guide and facilitate the experience, and then integration on the other side. So in isolation, in a vacuum, 
you can experience benefit. I've seen that. I've experienced that. A lot of my clients, friends, and family have experienced that. And when you have adequate preparation and integration, you up-level the likelihood that the experience is going to be superbly impactful for, for, for one's life. You up-level that percentage extraordinarily high. Mm. Powerful, powerful information. Um, and just on the tail end of that, I feel like the the lack of integrative focus is really really speaks to the lack of integrative focus that we have in society. I mean, you know, there's so many different examples to point out. Not to mention the lack of um, rites of passage that boys don't receive in their their um, their maturation process um, that they did in indigenous or aboriginal uh, cultures, tribal culture settings, um, and that's a whole thing in of its own. Um, but I feel like that's also stemming a lot of it too. Like I think of the far, the 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 hospital setting. You brought up a great point about doctors have a maximum of eleven minutes with their with their patients. So it kind of is like okay. Um, Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith, here's your pills. Call me in, you know, a week or something. Like, just go here, take these, and then go about your life. There's no real focus on, like, giving them, uh, uh, you know, like a step-by-step or a play-by-play kind of procedure on how to, how to integrate whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not taught that. Right. Um and we're not incentivized as physicians to talk about nutrition or talk about alternatives. And it's the average time at 11 minutes that shows the scope of the potential problem. That means a lot of people are spending even less time with their clients. And some people, some physicians are spending more time. But because we're not taught much and we're not incentivized much for alternatives, they're not really widely discussed. Same thing for psychedelics. We're taught even less about psychedelics, um, you know, as physicians. And the cultural kind of mindset is that those are drugs and that they're bad and that they're going to really fuck you up if you try them. Versus the broad kind of open-ended discussion that we're seeing through a consumer-driven movement. This isn't the pharmaceutical industry or the medical industry that's pushing the research. It's the people. And it's largely the people going through the experience, having a major wake-up, and desiring to be a, par- a part of the positive movement, as well as those who are interested in being you know, more service-oriented through this work, maybe that these are therapists or even uh, politically-minded activists that are now on the front edge of the campaign. And so I think we're going to continue to see more of the movement. We're going to continue to see more of these documentaries, these discussions. You're going to have high-profile people going through significant experiences, willing to share their truth about it. Um, you just We just saw relatively recently the French prime minister's sister kicked heroin with ayahuasca. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a fairly high-profile person, right? <laughs> I think we're going to continue to see that same kind of flavor of of truth come out. Because when you say that, I mean, like, whoa, 
the French prime minister's sister. That'd be something like, you know, Obama's <laughs> sister. <laughs> you know, I don't know if he would be willing to allow her to say that. You know, gratefully, um, you know, first and foremost, she was able to kick heroin, which is a really challenging addiction to kick. Mm. Secondly, he was uh, okay with her coming out about it. And right. I, I, you know, like a lot of things in other cultures, they're like no big deal. So like when Clinton had this thing with Monica Lewinsky and he was impeached for it, you know, most of the people around the, the world were, just thought that was kind of silly because in a lot of other cultures, that's kind of the norm. I'm not saying that it was okay or not. I'm just saying there's a large reference point to be able to have a broader discussion about what we think is right or what we think is wrong. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we in the U.S. have a particular mindset, and it's just because those are our views and that's what we've been grown up with. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. And it's certainly, from my perspective, not right that the psychedelic medicines across the board are dangerous and should be kept in Schedule 1. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see a discussion where all plants have their medical benefit appreciated and if they're dangerous, but we still know that they're beneficial, great, let's put them in Schedule 2. So at least we can use them when the time is right with skillful means and medical supervision. I think that's a good example of Ibogaine, for example, because it does have the cardiac effects. Um, not everybody should be doing that, and you should, certainly shouldn't be doing it at home without supervision. I think that's a very rational point of view. Um, opposed to demonizing something and just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is very irrational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. What an incredible conversation. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? I have a blog site called Mastery in Medicine where I share some of these views and write up people's pers you know, perspectives, my perspectives, experiences. It's fairly new, so information is just now kind of starting to trickle out there. Um, I just finished a book called uh, The Concussion Repair Manual, because in addition to psychedelic medicine, neuro neurocognitive restoration is another field and um, area of passion. That's going to come out in the next probably two to three weeks. And there's a section in there around psychedelics because many of the psychedelics have a neurocognitive benefit. They stimulate new cell growth and mm. neurogenesis. Um, I'm also affiliated with, as I mentioned, Crossroads, the Ibogaine Center, Onnit Labs, mm -hmm. which is a center in Austin, which is where I'm at now, centered on peak performance and um, those are probably the, the best places, um, at least right now, to track me down. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your perspective and your knowledge and wisdom on a variety of topics that we haven't really dived into too in-depthly at this point. And I'm just very appreciative that we were able to do that with you. Excellent. Yeah, it's good to be on the show, Ronnie. I wish you well. Thank you. All right, man. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the official Ronnie Landis podcast with our guest, Dr. Dan Engel. And please check out his work. If you've made it to this duration of the recording, 
obviously you're into this subject. So definitely check out his work. Um, and yeah, until next time, we will see you on the other side. Aloha.